Uh, would you please take up your Bibles and turn uh, to Acts chapter 8, which is on page uh, 916 uh, in the Bibles on your chairs, or 1088 in the large print Bibles. Now, after our Christmas series, we're returning uh, to the book of Acts, where we were um, back in, I suppose, November. And we're going to be reading Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. Uh, This is just at the end of a stoning of Stephen. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of God to us. Let me pray before we um, go further. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of yours. Please be with us now as I preach and as we listen. Please speak to our hearts by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, as I said, after a little break, we're back in Acts, which is exciting. This is an amazing book uh, that shows us the establishment of God's church. After Pentecost, it shows us that the pressures, uh, the new terrain uh, the church ventured into, the challenges uh, and priorities. Now, over the previous chapters, we have seen many threats to the church's existence. If you cast your minds back to, uh, into last year, we saw persecution. Uh, from the church authorities, uh, culminating as what we've just seen in Stephen's death in chapter 7. We've seen corruption, we've seen lying, if you remember from Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and also there was potential distraction over food provision back in chapter 6. But alongside it all, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has been unstoppable, hasn't it? It's been spreading despite it all. And today we're going to see those two aspects of the book, uh, threats yet expansion, coming right together, okay? Now that may be surprising. How could a church, how could church growth threaten the church? Surely the church kind of feeds off growth. Well, as we we get into this chapter, we're going to see uh, these undeniable threats to God's church that we need to take notice of as it grows, and we'll see why that happens. Now I wonder for you, what... What do you think the biggest threat to Trinity's existence is? What do you think the biggest threat to our existence is? Is it lack of money? Is it false teaching? Is it loss of leadership? Is it internal division? What is our biggest threat? Well, Acts help us keep our our radars up, our eyes alert, and it takes us right uh, to the foundations of the church Uh, the gospel itself. So let's get back into the story. Uh, Please be looking at uh, chapter 8 with me. As I said, Stephen has just been martyred and this opens up a new wave of uh, the most intense persecution yet that the church has faced. It's led by Saul and he is merciless, isn't he? He's approved of Stephen's execution and then he goes full out out against the church. Uh, 8 verse 1, it is a great persecution. And Saul's widened the net. Before the focus was, was mainly on the apostles, but now it's anyone and everyone. Verse 3, house after house, men and women dragged off to prison, and people, not surprisingly, are legging it. They're scattering to the areas nearby, because this is severe. Now, some of what happens next shouldn't be a surprise to us if we've been following the book of Acts so far. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This has been the ongoing picture, hasn't it, um, of Acts so far. As persecution comes, it doesn't stop God or his word. The gospel just keeps on spreading. But this, this growth we're about to see takes the church into some new territory, geographically new territory, and therefore, as we'll see, theologically. Luke, Luke decides to zoom in on one of the people who's been scattered, Philip, if you remember Philip, uh, he was from chapter 6, he was selected of one of the seven to, um, to feed and serve at tables, so he's not an apostle, but he, uh, Luke zooms in on Philip. Now where does he go? 
He goes to the city of Samaria, probably meaning the main city of the area of Samaria. Now, Samaria, that's a different kind of place. It's just north of Jerusalem, and it's got a different kind of people. As you, as you may know from other stories, such as the Good Samaritan or, or the woman at the well, that these people had a Jewish heritage, but they'd rejected much of the Bible, and they didn't worship at the temple. And there was actually great antagonism between the Jews and the Samaritans, hatred even. And it's clear from this story, Samaria has a different feel to it. You know, even in verses 9 to 11, we see they love magic. Uh, they're, they're willing to call a magician the power of God. Amazement, that word comes up a number of times, was, is big on their priority list. You know, this is Judaism, but twisted and distorted into something very different. But now the gospel is being preached even here, even in Samaria. Now, this is something that Jesus has said would happen back in a really important verse. If you want to kind of get a a full view of uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8 says this. This is Jesus speaking. But you apostles will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that's been the first few chapters in all Judea and Samaria. That's where we're heading now. And then to the ends of the earth. And and we see that coming on uh, in the later chapters. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen is this gospel breaks into this new area, breaks this barrier. Now, to help us understand what's going on, I want us to think of the church a little bit like a building. okay? Um, Because first of all, Luke is going to highlight the foundations of this building, okay? the gospel. And then we're going to look at two threats to that foundation. And I'm going to push the metaphor a little bit, uh, because the threats we're going to call, firstly, an upstairs-downstairs threat, and then a fake facade threat. We'll come back and see what I mean by those. Uh, But first of all, Luke shows us that the church is built on the one gospel. Okay, the church is built on the one gospel. Um, So Philip's in Samaria, and what's he doing? Do you notice verse 4? He's preaching the word, verse 5. He proclaimed to them the Christ. Luke is at pains to show us this is the same message Peter has proclaimed in the earlier chapters. This is the message of the apostles. This is the one gospel of Christ. And um, just notice the different ways Luke refers to it. It's the word. It's the message of Christ. Later in verse 12, we, we see it summarized as the kingdom of God or the name of Jesus Christ. This is the same gospel, the truth of salvation in Christ. And then we see God even verifies, this is my message. This is my one gospel. He shows us it's the same gospel by the signs Philip starts doing. You know, we've seen this in earlier parts of Acts, haven't we? These signs accompanying the preachers of the gospel in these early days of the church. And not only do these signs show the mercy of God, but they act like a stamp of approval, like a mark of authenticity from God himself. It's as if he's saying... Listen to Philip, because this is my message. Here's a taste of what my kingdom is about. And no wonder, at the end of verse 8, there's much joy in that city. There's healings, there's deliverances, there's salvation itself. People are turning from their love of magic uh, and believe the good news. Baptisms are happening. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? The church, God is marking people out as his own. The church is growing. 
And why is it growing? Uh, Because the one gospel is being preached. The the church is built on one gospel. I'm not going to labour this point, we've spent time on it before, but it's important. Whoever we speak to, in whatever language we speak to them, or country we go to, uh, the good news the church declares at its heart is the same good news that was preached back then, isn't it? We don't preach a new gospel. We don't make up something new. We preach the apostles' gospel, the good news of Christ. And that's exactly what Philip did. The church is built on this one gospel. No gospel, no church. But what threatens it? Because surely it looks all good. You know, Samaritans are turning to Christ. The church is being built. Well, first of all, uh, there's an upstairs-downstairs threat. Okay, an upstairs-downstairs threat. That's true. Samaritans are turning to Christ. They're being baptised. But I don't know if you noticed, something unusual happened. Or rather, didn't happen. Verse 16 The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. That's unusual, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the one who pours out his spirit, is holding him back. But why? Why is he doing that? Well, the holding back of the the Holy Spirit seems to be intimately connected to the apostles. Do you notice it's when Peter and John come, a delegation of the apostles, it's when they come and lay hands on them that the Holy Spirit is received. So Jesus is wanting the apostles particularly to see the Holy Spirit come on the Samaritan church for the first time. Now why? It's because we need to remember of this great division between the Jews and the Samaritans. Hatred and prejudice. The Jews would have looked down on the Samaritans. Now that's why I've called this Upstairs, Downstairs. Upstairs, Downstairs, if you don't know, was was an old TV show that showed the difference between the the servants, the lower classes, they were downstairs, uh, and then um, those superior, the the upper classes in the upstairs, you know, of of a magnificent house. A bit like Downton Abbey, if you've seen that. Lord Grantham's upstairs, and his servants are busy downstairs. Uh, There's division. One group is more superior uh, than the other. And if the apostles had never seen the Spirit come, then perhaps this this division between Jew and Samaritan would have continued. You know, perhaps perhaps no one would have believed he had actually really come on them. Perhaps there would have been two groups, one more important than the other. Those who had experienced Pentecost, those who didn't. Those of a Jewish heritage and those who, who weren't. Those who, who had the, the, I don't know, the pure gospel and those with a Samaritan version. Those everyone knew who had had the Spirit uh, and those who just thought they had. Two groups, uh, upstairs and downstairs. Now why does it matter if there's division? was because it rips at the gospel itself. It rips at the foundations of the church. We know the church is built on the saving work of God, isn't it? On grace. As I said to the, the, the children earlier, all, uh, Paul uh, said it, all fall short of the glory of God. We're all equal in our sin before God, and it's the gracious work of God, isn't it? The sending of his Son, then the sending of his Spirit that saves. There is no room in the church for pride, for superiority, for boasting. 
You know, to, to have an upstairs and a downstairs would completely deny this truth. It would say, grace, it only goes so far, the rest is actually down to me. It's down to my heritage, it's down to my background, my skills, my abilities. And it brings division. And not only division, but unkindness, arrogance, pride, malice, envy. All those sins that Christ came to die for. So as the church crosses boundaries, as its growth crosses boundaries, its foundations, the gospel itself, is at stake. There's this upstairs-downstairs threat. But you notice God had a plan. Okay, He withheld his spirit just, just long enough for Peter, John to get there, to lay hands on and to pray. And since they saw the spirit fall, there was no doubt. These Samaritans are truly part of God's church, of God's kingdom, equal with those of a Jewish background and those of a Samaritan background. There, just imagine, there in this place in Samaria, at that moment, was a, was a, was a beautiful unity, wasn't there? There was just one church, fellowship between a converted Jew and a converted Samaritan. The Holy Spirit was showing us all, in, in spiritual terms, there is no Jew or Samaritan, no upstairs or downstairs. The gospel is one of undeserved grace to all. Uh, perhaps a, a, a football analogy may help us. Like, let, let's imagine, okay, you just got to imagine it, Rangers created a new football team. Okay, I don't know, they called it Glasgow United or something, okay? And they, ha- they have a new strip and it's a new team and then Celtic join them. Okay, now the, the temptation for that team to stay divided would definitely be there, wouldn't it? Old rivalries to rear up. Old Rangers players to only pass to other old Rangers players. For fights to break out. Old hurts to be, to be sort of ignited in the changing room. But no, they're a new team. One team. A new identity. A new name. A new football strip. And that, that's a little picture, isn't it, of God's church. No Jew and Samaritan, but one church, one gospel of grace. Now, now it's important to say, God delaying the coming of his spirit can't be the norm. Okay, This isn't the norm of delaying his spirit, otherwise that completely defeats the point. Because the apostles suddenly would need to be at every conversion and baptism for anyone to receive the Holy Spirit, because it's the apostles who do this. Uh, and for anyone to be truly part of God's people. And we know that they're not needed like this since Saul himself receives uh, the Holy Spirit later on in chapter 9 through Ananias, a man who wasn't an apostle at all. This is a one-off moment in the history of the church. Now, why, why do I say that? This is important because some people may be tempted to use this passage to argue that people don't really have a fullness of the Spirit until they've had a second blessing. That there's conversion, and then after that, the Spirit comes. And that's the case for everyone, and using a passage uh, like this to argue for that. But, but it's important to say, firstly, we've seen, uh, that would ignore the importance of the presence of the apostles. Okay, they needed to be there in Samaria. Luke points us to that. But also, most people who argue for a second blessing would say, there's been a first blessing. The Holy Spirit has come in some measure when converted, but only fully in a second blessing. But here in verse 16, um, it's uh, that these Samaritans did not have the Spirit at all before the apostles came. This isn't partial, then full. It's it's nothing, then everything. 
Now, it's important to say, in saying this, I'm not, I'm not denying the work of the Spirit in our lives. Okay? We've already seen uh, in Acts the empowerment by the Spirit for witness. We see elsewhere in Scripture His illumination, His encouragement, His strengthening, His equipping, His sanctifying. And, and He can do this more obviously in our lives at different times. We, we do experience His work. But what I'm saying is, we mustn't let this passage actually have the opposite effect to what it's teaching. This glorious event here was showing that the church is one. There's no division. But to turn it into a text that supports second blessing does the opposite. It splits the church into two-tier Christians, those who are just converted and those who've had an extra experience of the Spirit. But no, this event in Samaria is a one-off, showing us there's, there's no two tiers to the church. There's only one. We're one in Christ. So the question to us is, well, where are we allowing an upstairs, downstairs to creep into our church life? What old divisions or new ones do we allow to exist uh, between us and between us and other Christians? Are they nationalistic? Are they economic? Are they theological even? I wonder if that last one... um, can be present, maybe not amongst us here as a church, but perhaps when we meet Christians from other churches. Now, of course, we need wisdom. Okay, We know some denominations uh, are dying. We know in places false gospels are preached and believed. Uh, Christ's deity is, is denied even today. Uh, the Bible's ignored. The, the church is built on the true gospel. But, but when we speak to someone from a church that does believe the gospel, okay? Or or we talk about that different church online, are we generous-spirited or are we overly suspicious? Do, Do you treat them like a brother or a sister? Or do you feel a little bit superior because I go to Trinity? Because I wonder if we can, we can start to treat people differently if they're, they're a bit sketchy on certain areas of doctrine. We can expect them to be utterly sound in every aspect of doctrine before I ever get close to treating them as an equal brother or sister. We treat, um, yeah, sometimes we, we, we need to show that a simple trust of the triune God for salvation through Jesus alone, through grace alone, that's enough, isn't it? Because if we start to look down on others, we've both forgotten the gospel and we're damaging it. We've started to believe we've earned God's grace. You know, I've been involved in my, my superior knowledge, my superior understanding. But no, the Holy Spirit is given to all believers. The Holy Spirit is in your brother or your sister. Whatever their depth of theology, whatever their background, whatever their abilities, they are united to Jesus Christ himself. He died for them. So may we protect the gospel and the church built upon it by our love for all Christians. No upstairs, downstairs, but one church. So that's the upstairs, downstairs uh, threat. But now the story takes a turn to focus on the man Simon. And with Simon we see the fake facade threat. It's easier said, uh, it's not very easily said actually, the fake facade threat. Uh, Simon the magician, now he's an intriguing figure isn't he? Certainly he's a very effective magician. 
um, perhaps overtly satanic, we don't know, or perhaps a conjurer, but clearly he's a man who's happy to take idolatrous praise. He's called the power of God, and he's about amazement. As are the Samaritans, they love to be amazed, and he loves to amaze them. Now Simon hears the gospel, and in some way he starts to believe it. He even seems to make a, a credible profession of faith, and he's baptised. However, straight away, Luke shows us that there's more going on in Simon's heart than he's let on. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptised, he continued with Philip. Now, that word for continued is the, is the same word Luke has actually used to describe the church's devotions to the prayers in chapter 1, or the, their devotion to the apostles' teaching in chapter 2. But yet here, Simon's devoted to Philip. And then verse 13 continues, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It's that word again, amazed. Rather than amazing others, he's, he's captivated by Philip's miracles. They're right up his street, aren't they? But this comes to a head when, we, when he sees the greatest miracle, the Holy Spirit himself coming on the Samaritan church. He is bold over. He can't get enough of it. Having seen the Samaritans turn away from his magic to trust Christ, he can see before him perhaps the glory days returning. You know, he's like a retired boxer having an even greater return to the ring. His eyes light up with the fame, the power, the authority. And he offers money. He says to the apostles, this is a great trick. Like, I want to be able to do that. Here, I'll pay for it. He tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on here? Well, here is the threat of a fake facade. Now, some, some houses we know on the front, the, the front is called that facade, okay? And they, they can look a certain style or from a certain time. Perhaps they have classical pillars or, or sash windows or, or made of old stone. And as you go past, people will say, ooh, what a grand old house. It must be very old. But you look just round the corner and there's the rest of the house. It's built with bricks and breeze blocks. It's as new as anything. The facade is fake. And this is uh, what could happen with Simon. Simon had understood something of the gospel because he, he was baptized. He clearly understood something. But here we see his heart. His heart is still in the Samaritan kingdom, not in Christ's kingdom. He was still about power. He's still about amazement. He's, he's about greed, not grace. The building behind was still Samaritan. You know, his, his kind of church would have had all the Christian jargon, a Christian facade on the front, but it would have been a total fake behind. And what we're seeing is this. As the gospel broke across, across a cultural barrier, it was in danger of becoming a different religion. It was in danger of being morphed into the pagan religion of the day just with a different coating. The gospel of grace again is at stake, that foundation. Notice what Peter says, verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The gift of God. God is gracious. He's the giver, the fountain of life. But to be bought... To be bought, no longer is it grace, but it's works. No longer is it the gospel free of charge, but it's one with cost. Simon's life was failing to reflect the truth of the gospel. Instead, he's starting to use it for his own gain. 
So as we look at the gospel spreading, even to us, we also need to be aware of a fake facade. Does our life show the gospel of grace? Because just like Simon, we can let Christianity um, just become a facade for our own man-made religion. And it's often easier, I think, to see in the wider church. You know, the prosperity gospel is a Christian facade for materialism. Christian liberalism is a facade for the Enlightenment and its idols of freedom from authority and individual rights. You know, even recent abuse scandals in the, the conservative evangelical church in England have shown people using Christianity to cover over their desire for power, manipulation and abuse. The gospel of grace is lost. But even though it's easy to see out there, for Simon, this wasn't a problem out there, was it? It was a problem in here. It was a problem in his own heart. It was personal. And I wonder if we can actually be a little bit like Simon. For him, he was, he was greedy for power, greedy to amaze the crowds. He adored uh, uh, to be adored and called great. As I said, it was about greed, not about grace. Let me tell you a story about a fictional character. His name's Bob. Uh, he's 35, he's single, he's a, he's a big fan actually of his namesake, Bob Dylan, but that's beside the point, and he's a regular, regular churchgoer. And one Sunday, the minister takes him aside and asks if he'd be willing to help with the youth work, and he is delighted. He, he thinks, finally, I've been recognised for the gifts I have, and he can't wait to get started. He's a great success. Um, he gets to know the youth, he's quick to get alongside them, people are quick to thank him, and he loves, he loves hearing the kids praise him in front of their parents. But this praise starts to matter more and more to him. Uh, he's, he's quick to highlight any of his successes to the minister. He, he flatters the parents, and he works hard at being a best friend for the youth, all in the aid of his profile. You know, the Christian lingo just rolls off his tongue. He speaks of the word and edification and devotions. And he starts throwing in longer theological words in front of those older than him, dropping in the books he's been reading to impress. But this comes to a head when Tim, another fictional person, he, he's, he's only 29, he's quiet, has little ministry experience, and, and he gets asked to lead the morning service. Now, now, Bob, he can't believe it. He is livid. Tim, Tim, what about me? What about what I've done? What about my skills, my abilities? And the anger boils. For Bob, Christianity had become a facade for his greed. His life no longer reflected the gospel of grace. Now, obviously, we're all in different scenarios, different ages, but I wonder if we all see something of ourselves in Bob. We love praise and affirmation, don't we? Uh, and we, we can find praise, affirmation, money even, becoming more and more important to us. And some of us know this is a personal temptation and we're fighting it. You hate it in your heart. You've, you've come to God time and again. And if that's you, please be encouraged. Don't start thinking you, you've lost your salvation somehow. We all sin. We all keep coming back to Christ. The Holy Spirit is more about changing your heart than you are. But I've told that little story for, for those of us perhaps who need a wake-up call like Simon did. Who've, who've let the idol, the, the greed, become so big, Christianity has just become a facade to your self-promotion underneath. Emotions like anger, I think, is... is 
one of the most helpful signals something is going wrong in our hearts. And if that's you, then hear Peter's rebuke. He's firm, isn't he? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God's. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. There is forgiveness. The gospel is a gospel of grace. Christ died to bring a life free, free from guilt, uh, from guilt and from greed, because we have everything in Christ, don't we? Even the Holy Spirit himself, may that truth start to sink deep in us, so that our lives start reflecting it. That in us, people would see the gospel of grace. So, as the, the church grows, the one gospel of free grace can be threatened. We've seen it can be threatened, threatened by development. Threatened by division and threatened by greed. Upstairs, downstairs, and a fake facade. But praise God, praise God he's building his church. Praise God that by his spirit he preserves the gospel in his church. That's what we've seen here, isn't it, in Acts. The church stays true all by God's kindness and grace. May we adorn that gospel with lives that reflect it. Amen.